Well, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. We're going through the book of Mark, and I can't promise you everything that we're going to touch on. There are some things we're not, maybe because I've preached on them in the recent past, whatever the reason may be. But we're going through this book, and we're looking at the good news. That's what the word gospel means, the good news. And I've entitled the the sermon series, Some Good News, because I'm going to promise you this, that with every passage that we look at, that we study and seek to apply, there's going to be some good news in it for you. I can promise you that. Something else that we have learned is that Mark has a tendency to look at the life of Jesus just a little differently than Matthew or Luke, and that's intentional. It's not because Mark is contradicting them. He just sees it from a different angle, and so he has a slightly different purpose. The passage that we're looking at today is also found <coughs> to some extent in <clears throat> excuse me, in the gospel according to Matthew, but <clears throat> Matthew uses it slightly differently. Jesus' intent was the same, but because of how Mark uses it, I think we're going to come away with a slightly different perspective and therefore a slightly different application. I want to tell you a story. Don't judge me on this until you've heard me out. <clears throat> there was a blonde and a gentleman sitting in the front seat of a truck and a pastor sitting in the bed of the truck. It was rainy. Don't ask me why the pastor was sitting in the bed of a truck when it was raining. As they were going over the bridge, the driver swerved just slightly, lost control, hit the guardrail, went over the guardrail of the bridge into the depths of the water below. They quickly, the blonde and the gentleman quickly opened the doors and swam to the surface, gasping for breath. And they climbed ashore on one of those pilings from the bridge that went straight down to the the riverbed. And they looked intently for the pastor. Is he going to surface? Where is he? And they saw some bubbles as he finally surfaced. And they pulled him in and they said, Pastor, Pastor, we thought you were a goner. What took you so long? And he said, the tailgate got stuck. Now, I tricked you on this, didn't I? Uh Uh-huh. You thought it was going to be a blonde joke, right? Now, some of you didn't laugh because you have heard this joke before, except it was a blonde sitting in the bed of the truck, didn't you? And that joke came out of my mouth. So here's where the rubber meets the road. I apologize for telling those types of jokes. I can rationalize it because it's funny, because it's a good segue into a point in my message, but it's wrong, okay? It's just wrong, and the reason why it's wrong is because it's demeaning to blondes. Yes, it is demeaning to blondes. And I've allowed God to search my heart, and if you hear me tell a blonde joke, just ask me this, just very, because you can be very gracious. I'm sorry, pastor, do you mean it was a pastor in the bed of the truck or wherever. I'll let you do that. But you know what? It's so easy to rationalize our sin. Now, that seems like an innocent sin. I'm not sure there ever is a thing, but it can feel that way. And so it's easy for us to just rationalize some of these things away. Well, like to what degree did it really hurt? Well, I tell you what, Look around to the blondes in a room when someone tells a joke, and you might get an answer. And so I I think somewhere they came from originally what was called Polak jokes, and I grew up with that in the 70s. And I thought nothing of it, which apparently came from something that the Polish did back in, what was it, World War I or World War II? And they didn't live it down. And I guess they realized that, wow, we shouldn't be making fun of those people. I mean, they're, they're human beings too. And, and so they switched it to what, blonde jokes? Whatever. And we can rationalize all day long. And I'm guilty of that, just so you know. But sometimes we can be blinded from our sin. And that's what I want to talk about today. Can I tell you another embarrassing situation? I remember preaching a sermon about how God loves us and that he does not have any redheaded stepchildren. Wow. Afterwards, a young man came up to me 
And she said, Pastor Mike, I'm a redheaded stepchild. Wow. I, I hear you laughing, but please listen. Listen to the pain in my heart, truly. Okay? Exactly. It is said, if you want to know how to apologize, ask a pastor because he's had to do it so much. You're not laughing at that one. It's true. I think I've become an expert at apologizing because I've had to do it so frequently. And it's probably because <laughs> I'm the mouthpiece behind the pulpit. And there are times in which, yes, I open mouth and insert foot. And you, you, you can rationalize. I didn't at that time. I'm so grateful I was not that stupid. But we can rationalize this all the time. We can say things and do things and think nothing of them. They appear so innocent. You know, I mean, even good. But some of these things in our lives are far more serious, however. And yet we still allow them, don't we? Can I ask you, what do you do? Jesus gives us an answer here. And he doesn't mince his words. He gets straight to it, and he cuts with it. And I'm emphasizing that word, cuts. He cuts right to the quick. Let me read it. Mark 9, starting with verse 42. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. He gives now three illustrations following. If your hand causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do, church? Cut it off. Wow. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell. Gehenna. He does not mince his words here. Cut it off. It's better to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell where the fire never goes out. Verse 45. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where, and this is a quote, <coughs> excuse me, this is a quote from Isaiah 66. He, he says this, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Then he says this, and we're going to look at this closer in just a little bit. Everyone will be salted with fire. But he goes on, salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. <clears throat> now, Jesus obviously is using a metaphor here. He is not literally saying that if your right hand just does something and it tries to choke you, wouldn't that be weird? Cut it off, literally, and what, bleed out? Obviously, Jesus is not being literal here, though... There have been some people who felt that he was and literally did stupid stuff like that. Jesus is using a metaphor. The metaphor of the hand or the foot or the eye represents something in your life that you feel comfortable with. Do you feel comfortable with your hands? Do, is your hand your enemy? Is your foot your enemy? Without your foot, you couldn't walk. Is your eye your enemy? What well, You see, we feel comfortable with these things, but Jesus is saying, well, wait. Now, if they are causing you to sin, get rid of it. Now, there are two basic views on how we're to interpret what Jesus is saying here. On the one hand, people suggest that he is speaking to unbelievers here. <clears throat> After all, it would be impossible for a Christian to go to hell is what they say. Now, can I just say <clears throat> that there is a possibility that Jesus is referring to this? Let me, let me remind you of the story of the rich young ruler. What was the rich young ruler's problem in his life? What was his hand or his foot or his eye? It was his money, wasn't it? 
And the reason why it was a problem for him is because it filled him up with greed so that <laughs> that greed, that sin, was keeping him from truly making God his primary love. So Jesus said, do you want to follow me? And I'm going to interpret what Jesus said. Jesus then turned to him and said, paraphrase, I can't be second place in your life. Do you want to follow me? I want you to do that. But before you follow me, you need to deal with this issue that is your God so that I will not be second place. I want to speak to you this morning. I want to ask you, is Jesus Christ first in your life? Because if he is not, here's my question, who are you really following? Because Jesus also said, now this is what Matthew tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you cannot serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other. You'll despise the one and cling to the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So make a choice here. So that's what Jesus was laying before, <coughs> excuse me, the rich young ruler. Now, do not misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. He is not saying, if you want to, before you follow me, you have to clean up your act. You have to get rid of these sins in your life because somehow you have to make yourself righteous. Are you following me? Somehow you have to make yourself righteous so that you can, what, be, be right with me and follow me? Let me have you step into the rich young ruler's heart because Obviously, we are not saved by our good works. You cannot do enough good works like selling all of your possessions and giving them to the poor and somehow empowering you thereby to follow Jesus. Can't happen. So I'm going to invite you then into what I believe is going on in this rich young ruler's heart. Again, he's an unbeliever being challenged to forsake his sin in order to follow Jesus. This issue of greed was a serious issue in his life. He truly believed he was a righteous man before God. And I will not doubt that from his perspective, he was truly following the very letters of the law, hoping thereby to be saved and have eternal life. Because he asked Jesus, what do I have to do to, get, to, to go to heaven, to, to be saved? And Jesus said, you know what? Have you kept these commands? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Jesus knew his heart because that is who Jesus is. And Jesus knows your heart. You can't hide it from him. And Jesus peers in, peered into this young man's heart and he saw the greed. And he realized this guy wants to gain eternal life. But he's going to think that he can follow me, but really serve his greed. And he can't do that. So here's my question. If the rich young ruler really did what Jesus told him to do. He, he actually gathered all of his wealth, all of his belongings, and sold it and gave all of his money to the poor. When do you think he would have gotten saved? Because the mistake is to say that after he did all of that, that's when he got saved. And I'm going to challenge you on that. Because when he would have really gotten saved is when he came to this realization, oh God, money is truly my idol, my God, and I repent before you, and I am cut to the heart. I have, I have thought I've been following you, and I have been so dis disillusioned. I have been following my own heart's desires, money, greed, avarice. And he would have repented and been saved then, and then he would have done what? Sold all of his possessions, or his yeah, possessions, and then given the money to the poor. So some would believe that <laughs> Jesus is now speaking to unbelievers at this point. Now, I'm going to say it's possible, but I would venture to say that the context doesn't seem to fit that very well. Regardless, the point of what I am saying to you just now 
that if there is a sin in your life and that sin is keeping you from following Jesus, keeping you from surrendering everything in your life to him and saying, God, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. If there's anything keeping you from that, that is something that you need to lay down and you need to, let me be honest, repent of. Maybe it is greed. Maybe it's a boyfriend. Maybe it's some other sin issue. Whatever it is, it's keeping you from truly surrendering your heart to him. I remember speaking to a young man many, many years ago. He wanted to know why I believed that Jesus is who he said he was. How can he believe the Bible's true? We got into some evidences for the Christian faith. And I, I said, because he was acknowledging, oh, wow, I didn't know that. I see, uh-huh, okay, so that's who Jesus is. And I said, so do you understand that Jesus is the son of God? Yes, I do. So are you willing to repent and believe in him and follow him? And he paused and he said, no. And he, I asked him, why not? And he reflected and he was totally genuine and honest. He said, I think I like my sin too much. I said, thank you for being honest. You need to count the cost. You have to know what it is that's keeping you, and it's those sin issues in your life. Now, can I just say, and I've told this story before, a year later he gave me a call. I can't remember how he got my number, maybe from his cell phone. We hadn't been in touch for a year, and he told me about how he gave his heart to Christ and how God was calling him into the full-time ministry. Others see, and I would say I agree with this, that the context lends itself more to Jesus speaking to believers, that there is a sin in our life or sins that is leading us astray. We are experiencing life, but the truth is that it is keeping us from embracing the fullness of that life to keep us from entering in, it could keep us from entering into eternal life in heaven. Now, I want you to turn with me to Hebrews 3. Now, I'm going to tread somewhat lightly here because I'm going to get into a theological concern, but I'm not going to make that the focal point of what I'm getting into, okay? The issue of eternal security. I don't want to get into that. That requires a lot of balanced thinking and scriptures, and that is not my focus here. I do want to read to you this passage, and I want to give you a challenge because it's going to segue then into the rest of the message. See to it, brothers, Hebrews 3, verse 12. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. He had just given an example of the Moses generation. The Moses generation had a sinful, unbelieving heart. But encourage one another Daily, that's the answer. Encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today. And he says that because you don't know what's coming your way tomorrow or the next day or the next month or next year. Encourage one another. Do you see someone being beaten up? Encourage them daily while it's today because you don't know what holds, what what tomorrow holds. And here's the challenge, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Can I, can I walk you through what the author of Hebrews is saying here? This hand issue, this foot issue, this eye issue, those sin issues in your life, and, and, and we all have them in varying degrees, but they cause us to sin. This is the deceitfulness of sin. It's the rationalizing. Oh, it's not that bad. It's just a white lie. And white lies then build habits to normal lying. Whatever labels you want to put on it, God simply calls it lying. It's sin. Don't do it. Repent. Follow me. Simple things like this. Just just put the right label on it. It's not a white lie. It's a lie. Or maybe it's just a little glance at a young lady a second and third time. And a little bit of less you know what, these little things, whatever labor you want to put on it, they lead to bigger things, lead to bigger addictions, lead to larger lifestyles that are, that do end up hardening our heart. So we have 
the hand, foot, eye, and it, we rationalize it. That's the deceitfulness of sin. Jesus said about wealth, he called it the deception of wealth. And if you've ever been caught in that deception, and I have, and just like waking up from a fog, oh my goodness, I am making a choice for money rather than a biblical principle? What is going on here? And I was deceived by wealth. Sin can be deceptive like this. It then leads to a hardening of the heart as I am entertaining this, rationalizing the sin more and more. My heart is now becoming hardened. I am beginning to be less and less convicted by the Holy Spirit. I am shutting now truth out. I'm maybe even praying less and less, reading the word less and less till it's non-existent as a habit in my life. And I am moving steadily away from truth. I am now listening more and more to the things of the world and what Hollywood would present to me as truth and what other so-called pastors who have rationalized many sins away, you can find them on the internet. And we are now being led more and more astray, rationalizing more. Our hearts are being hardened. Truly, we are growing more and more distant from this passionate love for Jesus Christ that we once had. We are moving away. Our hearts becoming hardened. And in that hardening, now we are being deceived and we begin to experience that sinful, unbelieving heart like the Moses generation that did not enter God's rest, the land of Canaan. Don't end up there. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. Persevere. Stay the course. And Jesus is simply saying, he, with, without sharing what I just shared with you, he just cuts to the chase and he says, hey, guys, the foot that's causing you to sin, cut it off. Cut it off. <coughs> <coughs> You know, in Fireproof, the main character smashes his computer because he has a pornography addiction. I don't, maybe that was before Blue Coat, Canine Protection, Covenant Eyes, other things. Regardless, he made a choice. This computer, it's stronger than me. I need to get rid of it. It is the hand or the foot or the eye, and he smashed it. Now, the scene is very funny. If you've not seen it, I encourage you to watch the movie. But regardless, it, what a salient point that that movie brings home there. You know, some of us have had to walk away from a boyfriend or girlfriend because it was toxic. We need to find another job because it requires us to lie. Are you feeling comfortable with that? Because if you are, you are being led astray. I knew a gentleman <clears throat> who had to sell a, his car. It was a nice car, a sports car. He bought it and went into a huge debt. I won't tell you how much he had to pay a month. It was a lot. It was his idol. He had come to Christ, and he realized he needed to sell it. It was a stronghold. And for him to move forward, he needed to get rid of his love for money. And that's where he said, he told me he needed to start. So he sold his car. And with the equity that was in it, he just bought a, a dinky little cheap car and decided to drive that. We need to do this, Jesus says, before it hardens our heart, before it robs us of life, where there's no more conviction where we run from prayer, we run from the word, the Bible. We begin being filled with an, an emptiness now with many other things that begin to lead us astray. We've opened a door. Jesus' conclusion is this, verse 49. Everyone will be salted with fire. He just mentioned hell three times. Everyone will be salted with fire. That fire that he had just mentioned that is unquenchable, in hell. What does he mean everyone will be salted with fire? What fire is he talking about here? Now, let me just say this, that this fire, fire in quotes, this fire can be seen both literally 
and metaphorically. The fires of hell, do not let anyone deceive you with this. They are real. To the best of our knowledge, they are literal and not symbolic. And even though there is fire in hell, and that is equated with outer darkness, some would say, and, and conservatives would say, therefore fire is metaphorical, because how can you have fire and darkness? I don't know how that can be. But let's just stop thinking the way our existence is, because the fire that we experience is not just hot and burns, it gives off light. And who are we to say that hell's fire is just like that? We do know that it burns, it consumes. But does it give off light? I don't know. I don't read that in my Bible. There's darkness. Regardless, the fires of hell are very real and they are eternal. They are, I'm going to use this word, you can write this down, punitive. That means that the, the, the fires of hell punish. They are not corrective. You see, in our judicial system, when someone commits a crime, <laughs> the desire of the judge is supposed to be that anything that is of a punishment nature is both punitive and corrective. It's punitive in that, hey, what you did was wrong, and there are always consequences to what you do that breaks the law. And it also gives warning to others. Hey, you want to kill someone? First-degree murder, let's say? You will be punished. There is punitive action that the courts will take against you. You will end up in jail either for life or the electric chair, whichever they decide. But it is also corrective. So obviously, if they're sentenced to the electric chair, there's no corrective measures there. But for others, stealing, you serve your time, you are punished, but the desire is that there is no what they call recidivism, meaning you don't do the same thing and end up in jail again. You are corrected. That's the goal, punitive and corrective. Hell is merely punitive. It is not corrective. Now, do you see why? It's like the person getting the electric chair. It's not corrective. But Jesus, I believe, is when he says everyone is salted with fire, is not just looking at the fires of hell, but he is looking at what even Christians experience. There is a correctiveness about this fire. He goes on then, look, in, look at the next verse. Salt is good. This fire are the sufferings then that, each, that every Christian goes through. You can't avoid it. You can pray against it. God, deliver me from this fiery trial. But guess what? There are times in which God chooses to allow you to go through that fiery trial, that suffering, that pain. Now, it's not necessarily because you did something wrong, but what he is doing is he is building Christ-like character in you. You see, the fire of that trial is corrective. It helps you grow. It helps burn away selfishness, produce humility, graciousness, love, forgiveness. Salt is good. We're all salted with fire. For those who choose to unbelieve, that fire that awaits them is eternal and punitive only. But all of us, the fire that we experience is not punitive. Christ took that punishment upon himself, the wrath of God that we deserve, justly deserve because of my sin. Christ paid for that. He, he appeased, if you will, the wrath of of God, because he was my substitute. Jesus was punished for me. I deserved this. I deserved eternal suffering in hell. I deserved that. I deserved that fire. Jesus made a way so I would not have to experience that. He took my place. He took the punishment for my sin. My sin was placed on him. The wrath of the Father was poured out upon him. So trials, sufferings that come my way, they're not punitive. They're not to punish me. You did wrong, I'm going to punish you now. You see, Jesus took that for me. 
the term that theologians used here is propitiation. Propitiation, just if you were wondering. And so the, the trials that come our way are only corrective. They are to help us. They are to build the character of Christ in us. But I want you to see something here. Interestingly enough, and only Mark does this, he connects. Do you see there at the very end of verse 50, and I'm going to camp out here for about 15 minutes. He says, have salt in yourselves. In other words, allow the suffering, the trials in your life that are producing Christ-like character, embrace them because what? Salt is good. So the salt isn't just the suffering. It's what it produces. It's the Christ-like character. That is, I'm not saying suffering's good. When, when God created the world, he didn't produce suffering until man sinned. Suffering is the result of sin. It's the curse that will be lifted at the end of our time. And we're ushered into the kingdom of heaven forever and ever and ever. After Christ comes back, then the curse is lifted to be known no more. And everywhere throughout the universe, that's how far the extent of the curse is, all of that will be corrected. And as Colossians 1 says, everything in heaven and on earth will be reconciled. And the Greek word there is literally translated more means super reconciled. All these things will be super reconciled to the Father through Christ who died for us. And so Jesus here, this salt then is the building of that character it's not that suffering is good, it's what it produces is. And then he connects it with what? Here's what he concludes with. Be at peace with each other. That is not an accident. Can I just ask then, why does Jesus put them together, this principle of having salt in yourself, embracing it, and then be at peace with each other? Not coincidental. Now, number one, and I'm not going to focus on this, I'll do that next week. Number one, it segues to the next chapter. What's the heading of that chapter in your Bible? Chapter 10. It's about divorce, isn't it? Yeah. Do I need to say any more? Be at peace with one another. Okay. You know, for some of you, th there's not peace. There is a hand issue, a foot issue, an eye issue that you need to gouge out because it is destroying you and it's destroying your marriage and you need to excise, you need to cut that off because it's destroying your relationships, it's destroying your marriage. So, and Mark, Jesus is now teaching, is now gonna teach on divorce and the permanency of that. But what I wanna focus on more is that I believe that <clears throat> the other reason why Mark does this is because he wants us to see that in our interpersonal relationships, there is breakdown, and there is need for reconciliation. The Lord is really bringing this home to me. There is a need for reconciliation, because if you don't do it the right way, you're allowing a hand issue, a foot issue, an eye issue, something in your life that is causing you to sin, and you will never be reconciled to that person. Do you see then the gravity of this and why they're being put together? So here's what I'm going to do. How is it that we are to live at peace with one? Is that even possible in a sin-cursed, broken world? I'm going to say it is, but only if you are completely surrendered to Christ and that day by day the flesh is being crucified. And I'm just going to walk you through some principles right now in the next few minutes here. And I am going to probably preach an entire sermon or series on this because literally a book or books could be preached on the principles that I'm going to share with you right now. But allow me a little bit of time to share some of these principles with you. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. I'm going to probably be reading before you get there. I've already marked it in my Bible. Romans chapter 12, verses 16 to 19, he says this, live in harmony with one another. Do not 
be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Don't be arrogant. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, forget about the other person Paul is saying here, just you. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with the people you like. Isn't that what your Bible says? Hang on. Oh, hang on. Hang on. Okay. It says live at peace with who? Everyone. Everyone. There are no exceptions. As far as it depends on you. I've encountered those times in which I have tried reconciliation as far as it depends on me, as best I could, at least, I, and I walked away still unreconciled. As far as it depends on you, verse 19, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So here's my first thing I want to share with you. You know, when we feel offended, we can unjustly justify our anger and its use. But you know what? When we are the offender, the same can be true. Whether you are receiving the offense or whether you are giving the offense, we can all unjustly justify our anger and how we're using it. So here's the first thing I want to share. Number one, use anger as your ally, not as a weapon. Use your anger as your ally. God created you so that you can get angry. What does Ephesians 4 says? In your anger, don't sin. I mean, was Jesus sinning when he took the whip? No, it doesn't say that he hit anybody. Was it sinful? Was it sinful for Jesus to drive out all those people, to overturn the money changers' tables? Their coins went everywhere. I'm sure they were so ticked at Jesus. He was angry with them. Was he justified in that? Careful now. Oh, yes, he was. Was Saul? In 1 Samuel chapter 11, just become, he had just become king. And the Bible says that when he had heard about what I believe it was the Ammonites did to a town of Israel and treated them so unfairly, demeaningly, was going to conquer them. And they, the people said, hey, we're just going to send out for a word of help. Can you allow us three days? And they said, fine. Within three days, Paul, excuse me, Saul, King Saul, hurt, got the word, and it says he was filled with the Spirit and got angry. So I'm going to tell you right now, anger can become your ally. When you are afraid to do something that's right, anger can become your ally to say, you know what, I'm still going to do it. Careful, though, that you then don't use the anger as a weapon. That's where we can become guilty, too. We can use our anger to hurt, to humiliate. We can use it, as Paul says here, for vengeance. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't, don't use your words to really give them a good zinger, to get sarcastic. Careful of that one. We can use sarcasm so easily and feel so justified. Oh, I was just joking. No, you weren't. You were really meaning it. Be honest. Come on. I've done it. I don't think I'm the only one in the room here. Guard your mouth. Use anger as your ally, but don't use it as a weapon to hurt. Don't use it as a weapon to puff yourself up and, and hurt people and be mean in this way. Number two. Speak the truth in love. Don't justify speaking the truth without doing it in love. No. Speak the truth in love. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is not rude. 
It is not arrogant. And it is not judgmental. Don't, <coughs> don't finger point at their heart since you don't know it. If they're doing something wrong or they've said something wrong, point it out to them. Be bold. Point it out to them. Allow them to apologize. But don't weigh their heart. You don't know it. Number three, don't give ground to bitterness. Church, guard your heart. Have salt in you. Have salt in your conversation, Colossians 4, 6 says. When we speak, are you speaking from bitterness? What's coming out of your mouth? If it's ungodly, if it's rude, arrogant, judgmental, if it's filled with bitterness, have salt in your conversation. That which is good, Christ-like character. Hebrews 12, 15, it says this concerning bitterness. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. And I want to tell you this, that bitterness comes it's evidenced by what comes out of your mouth it is not just hurting those people it's not just using anger as a weapon it will eat you alive it is the devil's tool to destroy you be quick to forgive weigh it before the lord and by the way when someone's offended you and you haven't told them yet don't walk up to them and say oh by the way i forgive you don't do that that's not fair. <laughs> Have you ever had someone do that to you and they think they're, just, they're being so godly? Oh, by the way, I just want you to know I, I forgive you. And you're thinking, I'm sorry, what, what are you forgiving me for? Oh, you don't know? Truly, I don't know. So you, you go to them and explain what happened that offended you. Talk it through. Don't allow a root of bitterness to spring up and defile what comes out of your mouth and hurts them, and don't let it defile you either. It is merciless. Bitterness will destroy you. Be quick to forgive and be quick to apologize. Number four, try walking in their shoes. Try walking in their shoes. See it from their perspective. A woman was sitting at a red light. There was a gentleman behind her. The light turned green. She put the gas on, and suddenly the car died. She threw it into park, turned it on. Nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And finally, the guy behind her was like honking his horn, honking, honking. And he's like, come on, I'm car gets started finally, and I would not recommend you do this, how bold she was. She got out of her car, walked to the man behind her, and he very graciously, I think he pressed with the right hand, pressed the, down, pressed the button so the window went down so that he could block a, a punch should she have thrown one to him, but she didn't lean in to do that, and he says, yes, like, duh, like, what do you think she's here for? And she says, sir, I have a really great idea. How about if we change places and you sit in my car and I sit in yours and I will honk at you? I think he got the point. But the truth is, step into their sandals, their shoes. Try to see life from their perspective. Try to grasp a little bit of humility. What have I done to offend? Ask questions. And if they're right, don't be afraid to own it. Humble yourself. Then ask your own self. If you've been hurt, why am I so hurt? Have I misunderstood? Have I inadvertently contributed to this offense? These are questions we have to be humble enough to ask. And not just become rude, arrogant, and judgmental with our accusations. <clears throat> you know, I entitled this message, Salty. Salty. 
Have you ever told someone, ooh, that was salty? Because this word has two different meanings. It has a literal meaning, and it has an implication. I'll start with the latter. Salty can mean angry, irritated, or hostile. Ooh, you're a little salty. Have you ever said that? Have you ever been a little salty? Oh, yes. And that is exactly what I'm saying don't do. Don't be salty in that way. The kind of salt Jesus is referring to is this Christ-like character. It's being gracious. It's being loving. It's being kind. Can I ask you, what is keeping you from this, from reconciliation? Paul says in in Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, all of these things, the last being salty. Don't be overcome by these things. Five, there's more than five out there. I just listed some. But overcome evil with good. Are you offended? Don't hesitate to be kind. Don't hesitate to even praise. Bridge that gap. Touch their heart. Seek reconciliation. Stop thinking about how hurt you are. Seek their good. Overcome evil with good. And seek that reconciliation. Jesus says in verse 50, salt is good. But if it loses, listen, church. You know what that salt is. You know it's a Christ-like character. Listen. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? If this offense, lack of reconciliation, eats away at you, you give room to bitterness and anger, rudeness, arrogance, judgmentalness, if you're pointing the finger and fail to see things from their perspective because you think you're so right, careful, don't get salty, Instead, be salty, you know what I mean. Is your salt losing its saltiness? Today, as I've shared these things, is the Spirit of God speaking something to you beyond my own words? I have no clue what it might be. And is he trying to say, look, let's have love. Are you really doing what's loving? Are you really speaking what's loving? And if you have forgotten, 1 Corinthians 13 is a good place to at least start because love is not rude. It is not arrogant. If we're losing our saltiness, we are going to need to find out what is that hand that we feel so comfortable with or that foot that fits us so well, that eye through which maybe we think we can see so clearly, but you are just kidding yourself. You need to pluck the eye out if it's offending you, causing you to sin. Pluck it out. That beam in your neighbor's eye only looks that way generally because when you take a speck of dust and put it up to your eye, With the other person in the background, it seems so big because that is simply your perspective. In reality, it's just a speck of dust. Remove the plank from your eye first to remove the speck of dust from your brothers. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. What is that salt that Christ is pouring into you. Access that. By God's Spirit, access it. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with everyone. Amen, church? Can you stand with me? You know that I always preach my sermon to myself first before I preach it to you. I've had to do a lot of my own heart-checking in all of this before I could stand before you. And so I want to challenge you. Let's cut the hand off, the foot, the eye, whatever it is. Let this, I don't know what that is for you. You have to answer that. I just want to spend some time right now. Let's ask God, is there any of that in me?
Father. The Lord is showing. The Lord is showing me that there is someone here and you need to go to your dad and you need to be reconciled. And you need to have an open conversation. And you need to love. You need to take some of these things that the Spirit has been speaking to you Father, the truth is, in so many ways, we are all guilty of lacking in saltiness. We've gotten angry, and we have given place to that anger, and the devil has gained a foothold in our life. Your word says, get rid of all anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from our lips. And we are not innocent there. I ask you, Father, that you would please be ever so gracious right now to examine our heart and to speak so clearly and to embolden us and empower us by your spirit. As children of God, this is part of our inheritance. God, please, may we access this and everything that your spirit offers us to be able to be reconciled to our brother, to our sister, to our spouse that we believe is just so wrong. To be reconciled, to live at peace as far as it depends on me. God, we need your God, we need your spirit. We need your eyes in this. We need your heart in this. Please, Father. Please, God. Teach us your ways. That we give no place to the flesh. Thank you, God. You are so forgiving, gracious, loving, patient with us. Teach us to be the same. Heal our hearts and show us how we, with our words, can be that agent of healing for someone else. In Jesus' name I pray.